The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Hello, New York Giants fans, and welcome back to the Valentine's Views podcast here on Big Blue View Radio, part of your SB Nation family of podcasts. I'm your host, Ed Valentine of Big Blue View. You know, in the world today, there's a lot of of serious things going on, and, and sometimes we just need a distraction. Hopefully, here on the podcast today, I'll be able to provide you with one of those. Recently was able to speak to... Brett Romberg, who is a former journeyman NFL center with with a few different teams from 2003 to 2011. Brett also played for the University of Miami, happened to be a teammate there of both Jeremy Shockey and Entrell Roll, who he told me he remains good friends with to this day. Um, this will be uh, pre-recorded my interview with Brett recently, and Brett told some fantastic stories about Roll, about Shockey, about uh, you know his his time spent with both of those guys, both at Miami and, and after that. So hopefully you will enjoy that, Brett. We also talked about the Giants' center position. Um, and, and Brett had some some pretty strong opinions about that. Brett also happens to uh, to be based in Miami, so we were able to talk about uh, about Eric Flowers, another guy who, uh, although he hasn't been a Giant now for a couple of seasons, Giants fans still have strong feelings and strong opinions about. As well as uh, as get some insight into uh, new Giants defensive coordinator Patrick Graham, who held that job for the Miami Dolphins a year ago. So I've I found this to be a really entertaining and informative interview. Uh, let's actually get to that right now. And uh, you know, word of warning that that this is a little bit longer interview than we than we have done. You know, most recently here at uh, on the podcast. So uh, settle in for a little while. Uh, I think this one will definitely be worth your time. All right, Giants fans, I've got a special guest for you now. I'm joined by Brett Romberg, who is a former NFL player with the uh, Jaguars, Rams, and Falcons. 
and who is currently the host of the Brett Romberg Show. So obviously, I'm talking to Brett Romberg. How you doing, Brett? Good, man. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Hey, you know, I kind of stumbled over that intro. It's like, well, if it's the Brett Romberg show, it's got to be Brett Romberg, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of, it's a little redundant, but hey, man, clarity is important. Hey, so, uh, so you know, we're, we're talking Giants, we're talking uh, NFL, we're talking training camp, and uh, if folks don't remember your name, uh, you are a former NFL center, and that's a position that uh, that's of... of uh, of lots of interest to Giants fans, so we'll get into uh, we'll get into that competition a little bit. But where I want to start is you played at the uh, you played at the University of Miami and yeah. played with several players who are familiar to Giants fans. Played with Jeremy Shockey, played with Antrell Roll, played with uh, with Dion Grant. So I, I guess we'll start there. We'll start with uh, with some of your, uh, your your Giants connections from your Miami days. The the guy who people always you know shake their head about when it comes to his Giants career is is Jeremy Shockey. I guess because it started so well for him in New York and, and ended so badly. Just your memories of, of the kind of guy Shockey was and. And maybe we'll get into your thoughts on on his Giants career uh, as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, for those of you that know, yeah, me and Jeremy played together at the University of Miami. Uh, we were like the two crazy white boys with the long hair. Uh, I was the fat version, clearly being an offensive lineman. He was the tight end. And um, coming from Ada, Oklahoma, he uh, he really wasn't even a blip on the radar as a as a JUCO transfer in. But it seemed like our offensive coordinator and tight end coach, Rob Chudzinski, who later obviously went on and, and coached the Cleveland Browns and has been with the San Diego Chargers and that kind of thing. Now I think he's working as, a, as some kind of liaison. But um, but yeah, Jeremy Shockey eating dirt when things went wrong. Like he, he was just straight up country bumpkin, didn't know any better kind of player that you wanted. Hard worker, kid had massive hands, his banana hands. And, uh, and and would constantly try to get reps in that. Because at that point in time, he was a year younger than me. And uh, I've already established myself as the starting guy sophomore year. Jeremy comes in my junior year and obviously just explodes. He, he became electrifying on the practice field, uh, obviously, which transferred over into the games. And me and him met in the end zone a lot of times. A lot of photographs of me and old Jeremy celebrating in the end zone together. So, And aside from that, after his epic freshman year at, uh, at, at the New York Giants, rookie year, whatever you want to call it, uh, Jeremy came back after that epic first season and lived with me. We lived together. So that offseason was I – could, I, you could only imagine – me coming out of college and Jeremy after that monster first year in the NFL where he took New York by storm, living together in the same house that we did in college was was pretty epic. Let me guess that there were a lot of of late nights. Oh my god, late nights or early mornings, whatever. <laughs> want to chalk them up. There was times where it was soup rain. We had slip and slides in the front yard. He was friends with the Maloof brothers, so the Maloofs would come and pick us up on their like bus. There was, oh my God, you, you want to talk about, oh, I, without getting him or myself in trouble, there was, uh, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of sinning, I guess you can say. <laughs> there was a lot of sin that went on during those four or five month period. Oh man. Uh, I can, I, I can only imagine the, uh, 
the the stories you could tell if if you had a the time and b the desire. But uh, <laughs> I I think we'll just we'll just leave some of that to uh, to the imagination. Of course, of course, of course. <laughs> so, yeah, but uh, Jeremy, Jeremy again coming off of that epic first season. Obviously, when Jeremy got on the map in that Hall of Fame game was when he ended up trucking that defensive back up the sideline. When we saw that, and when the announcers made that call of "Oh my God." look at that and then obviously fighting the starting linebacker in camp i i almost got god i probably remember more about jeremy's career than i do my own but uh i followed him heavily heavily he's my boy he's a good friend of mine and and much like a lot of nfl players they're not necessarily fans of teams they're fans of guys and players and wanting them to succeed so seeing jeremy dominate the landscape in the forefront and then when we would go up and play against them me and him would always go to dinner i'd go to jersey where he lived right there uh i think he lived in what is it is it hoboken or we hawking or something like that right there on the water that's where he used to have his place okay yeah i'm not sure where but uh but yeah you know he's uh it's just interesting and it's i i always look back on on the talent that he possessed and and the way things started for him in new york versus the way that they ended and and as you know i just wonder you know looking back on it if there's some sort of wistfulness that, that it had ended better for him in New York. Obviously injury, you know, plays a giant part of that. Um, but it's, it's funny that I hear a different perspective of, of the way that Jeremy Shockey's persona was portrayed from a New Yorker, from a Giants fan, because I have it as a friend, as a, as a former teammate, as a really good buddy that we grew up together. So, you know, the, the, the Jeremy Shockey that I see that, that I kind of put on the pedestal and, and the way that his career, I feel as if he almost got shoved out by the owners when I believe, what was his name? Was it, was it Doss? No, what was the, the giant tight end that came in? Kevin Boss. Boss, Boss mm-hmm. was the humongous kid that came in and ultimately replaced Jeremy and having Jeremy watch, uh, you know, from a suite, a Super Bowl, you know, that that was probably and I think self-admittingly, that was the hardest thing for him to see an organization who basically highlighted everything there was about Jeremy Shockey. He was like their go to guy. He was their 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 lunatic. He was their Gronkowski, I guess, if you want to go modern day tight end. He was their Gronkowski of 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 fame, lunacy heretic but also amazing football performance and once he became like many do in the game of football obsolete or non-productive for that organization due to injury they just move on and they forget and and I have the the notion of a player and as a friend of Jeremy's of I feel I feel the Giants kind of quit on Jeremy yeah it's interesting I mean it's a different perspective because because what I remember and I wasn't covering the team at the time. I mean, what I remember is sort of what seemed like unhappiness and, and, you know, and an argument that, that, that happened or was reportedly happened with Jerry Reese. And, and I, I remember feeling at the time, like, like it was sort of mutual, like it was just time for, for both sides to, to go their separate ways. And I imagine part of that has to deal with Jeremy's agent, right? Drew Rosenhaus. I imagine those conversations going back and forth because Drew and his brother, Jason, the reason why I basically signed with Rosenhaus was because of Jeremy. And they were over at my house all the time uh, when Jeremy lived with me. And, and honest to God, 
Jeremy, without having that father figure in his life, the Rosenhaus brothers were almost like his babysitters at the same time, you know, because he, let's face it, you know, Jeremy's hair was on fire all the damn time. <laughs> yes. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And, and, and sometimes when things catch fire, you can't put them out. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Honestly, honestly. Uh, so, hey, let's talk about uh, about at least one more of your your Miami teammates who became a really critical member of the New York Giants. And, and, and the guy I want to ask you about is Entrell Roll. And if I'm if I'm correct, he's a couple years younger than you. He came in. He would have been a freshman or a sophomore when you were a junior or a senior at Miami. And I guess my question would be, you know, he became not only a really good player, but he became sort of the voice of the Giants. He became a really vocal leader, you know, for the Giants, you know, during that that 2011 run especially. And I guess my question is, could you have seen him becoming that kind of guy, you know, as, as a real young player? No, um, ironically, no. And, and the reason why I'm so quick as a hiccup to go ahead and jump on this one is, is me and Antrell are business partners. We talk just about every day. Uh, his house is not too far from my house down here in Miami. And I got to learn more about Antrell in the last two or three years. Uh, let me let me give people a, a little story about Antrell Rule that he ended up reminding me about at the collegiate level. We're in the summer training camp era right now. We're, we're in the, the, the reporting for workouts, those dredgeries that we were going through with Coach Swayze at the University of Miami back in the glory days. And, uh, and Antrell shows up fresh out of high school with his cleats on, and there was one water bottle, one water bottle that was put outside for us to go ahead and drink from when we're all basically dying and passing out in 145-degree heat breathing through a sock. And Antrell ended up taking the water bottle and poured it over his head. And me, being one of the lunatic leaders of the program— I apparently chased him around like I was going to tear him limb from limb. And, and, and Antrell told me, he's like, Brett, I was terrified. I was literally terrified that you were going to get a hold of me and kill me and tear me apart. And I, I told him, I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't remember that story. Uh, I, I usually tend to forget the bad ones. So I'm glad that you reminded me about that. And, and he goes, from that point on. I knew when I was attending the University of Miami, I was attending something special. So whether it was the Ed Reed passing the baton to Sean, passing the baton to Antrell, Vilma, DJ Williams, Jennings, you name it, that whole defense that we had for that little era was out of control, redonkulous. And Antrell taking those reins and becoming the leader at the University of Miami and then moving on from Arizona to the New York Giants and blessing them, obviously, with some great football when we went in there and played you guys in 2011 in the playoffs, the first round, Atlanta Falcons, we go up there to visit you guys. I made one phone call, and it wasn't to Jeremy Shockey to try to hook me up with the, with somebody. I think this is when you guys had, like, God, your defensive was was just ridiculously stacked. You had Tuck. You had, uh, obviously, JPP. You had a bunch of guys up front that were giving us a lot of issues. a lot of, And your stand-up right. linebackers to boot. Mm-hmm. OC and Kiwanuka. Oh and, my and that God. Whole yeah. crew. See there. That was right. Um, and then obviously I made one phone call to Antrell and I was like, Antrell, man, I know this is weird. We haven't spoken in probably a decade, but is it possible that you could hook me up with good seats? Because 
the visiting seats that teams get allotted when they go into town suck. They put us up in the rafters, you know, family members. They're not looking for a good viewpoint at that point in time. So I call Antrell, and I didn't even realize how big of a deal Antrell was with you guys at that point in time. Obviously, he's on my scouting report, and I'm learning about him, and and he's made himself a beautiful little football legacy. Um, and and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, hey, Antrell, is it okay? And he goes, yeah, Rom, how many do you need? I got you. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Can I get four tickets? My mom's coming in from Canada. She's bringing her boyfriend. And yeah, yeah, no problem. I meet up with Antrell before the game. And this is when usually money's exchanged. And I was like, hey, man, here. And he's like, for what? I said, for the tickets. And he said, absolutely not. Canes, absolutely not. And I was just like, oh, my God. This is like $500, $600 at least worth of really good ticket money. And he just said, no, nah, man. No, 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 absolutely not. I don't, I don't want your money. I don't, I don't want your money. Probably he didn't need it. I didn't realize how much damn money Antro World made in his <laughs> career. I just learned that last year. But, uh, but now I was just like, man, yeah, the, for him not taking money and not interested in just making sure that my family, uh, the Kane Brotherhood stayed alive was, was, was epic for me. So, so how good were the seats? Oh, they were phenomenal. They were right, uh, right, right where the player section was. Antro got him right in the player section. He must have had carte blanche. Obviously, certain players are allotted better tickets than other players, you know, depending on how far down the totem pole you actually are. But uh, but Antrell took very, very good care of my mom and uh, and my family. So I'm, I'm forever indebted for that. <laughs> there you go. And you said you guys uh, you guys do a little business together these days still. Yeah. Yeah. Antrell just got done building his uh, his dream compound uh, right near my house. Uh, he, he's a homestead kid. He's, he's his dad's the chief of police. For those of you that don't know, uh, he's the chief of police down in Homestead, Florida, and has been now forever. And and the reason why I've kind of learned quite a bit about Antrell's family is just recently, Antrell was going back home to visit his his parents in the house that he grew up in as a kid. And ironically, he just came back from doing a Giants game. And because I guess he goes there uh, every once in a while and he does like the Giants network and does their TV work and stuff like that up in New York. Yeah, once in a while. Yep. And he came back and he was pulling into his parents' house and somebody from his neighborhood in a golf cart, some super cop, you know, just a couple neighborhood guys pulled up behind Antrell's Range Rover and uh, ultimately is shining lights in his window. And Antrell's like, can I help you? And they're like, can we help you? Do you live here? And he's like, you got to be kidding me. Like total racial profiling. This is my father's house. This is the house that I grew up in. My dad's the damn chief of police for Homestead. Ironic story. Antrell's father's name is now on the Homestead Police Department wall. Like I'm talking, it's named after him. The the whatever his dad's name is, Mr. Rolls, Police Department, Homestead Chief of Police. When he was a kid, he wasn't even allowed to cross the street to go on that side of the road where that building is. So, like I know I know we're getting into like you know current racial issues and stuff like that. But seeing a good buddy of mine, Antrell, explain to me not only one how black people view police how growing up as a black kid in Homestead in South Florida dealing with racial issues, but his dad being the chief of police. So I was learning a hell of a lot of stuff from Antrell Roll and what he had to talk about, you know, obviously being an African-American dealing with racism, but also being on the police side of things when it comes to dismantling or defunding police. So man, smart kid, great kid, good family, man, loves his children more than anything. He's got his little boy, June June and his two girls, uh, twin daughters. So he's, he's a busy cat, man. He's a, he's a busy individual nowadays. Yeah, you know the only thing I'll say about about the whole uh, the whole social profiling or racial profiling and all of that is I don't think any of us can understand. You know, any of us who haven't lived through that can can understand what that is really and what that feels like. And 
and I think that that this is a, a really tremendous time in America for for us to listen, for us to learn, for us to yep. to try to understand what that's all about. Because when it can happen to Antrell Roll, or when it can happen to anyone, basically pulling into their parents' driveway. That's a sad state of affairs. Oh, yeah. it's. Uh, I, I've learned quite a bit from a lot of my buddies that I was just oblivious to. Not necessarily ignorant, but just oblivious. You know what I mean? That whole white privilege conversation, that could, that could be had another day. But just learning that being a professional athlete, you can't get pulled over in the middle of the week. The reason being is because whatever police officer is pulling you over, they don't remember at that point in time what you did on Sunday or Saturday. If you're a basketball, football, baseball player, it's okay, apparently. And I didn't know this. It's okay to get pulled over Saturday through Monday because it's fresh in their memory. You're either going to a game, you remember, the cop remembers what you did in that game. But if you get pulled over Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, boy, you're in some trouble. So trying to stay off of the roads in the middle of the week as an African-American athlete is like something that is – it's known. It's just known within the athlete community that I was totally oblivious to. Yeah, crazy, crazy stuff. But as you said, let's let's keep the focus as much let's as we sports. can yeah, on sports. football, and uh, and let's do that. Somebody else that you uh, you pointed out to me uh, before we we went on the air, who you had uh, familiarity with, is another player Giants fans know really well, and that would be uh, would be Dion Grant. So what what can you tell us about uh, about Dion? Oh, man, me and DG played together in Jacksonville. And uh, you want to talk about one of the smoothest, trash-talking, arrogant, confident football players I've ever been around. I could have sworn that kid went to the University of Miami with all that trash talk and, and, and arrogance he had. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but DG, a great leader, once again, uh, a good voice. I would I don't know if I would put him in, like, the Richard Sherman category of of what I had back in the day in terms of a, a vocal, intelligent uh, very outspoken player on a football team, but I, I guess you could say that I would put him in that category as uh, as a leader. Um, I imagine him and Antrell in that defensive backfield must have been must have been lethal. Educated, smart, uh, vocal, uh, really probably had their defense on point when playing on the field. Yeah, that's what he what he really really brought to the Giants because at that point he was toward the end of his career he really brought a leadership presence he brought a willingness at that point to be uh to be a guy who who played basically played a box safety he was he he was almost a, a a linebacker at that point in his career but but what he really brought was 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 the leadership and that uh that that winning attitude that that uh, that team really benefited from. Yeah, he's a, he's a definitely a good guy to have in the huddle, pre-game, post-game, during a game. He was like that general, like even at the Jacksonville Jaguars when he showed up. I think we played together for about a year. Uh, when he showed up, I think he was a Carolina Panther product from Jack Del Rio. So Jack Del Rio and his familiarity with with Dion Grant brought Dion in to try to help out in that defensive backfield when uh, when our safety Donovan Darius went down. So DG vocal, smart, um, violent. He loved violence, and and I don't know what the what the product was at the end of his career, but I know when I was playing with him, uh, he definitely liked to go ahead and let you know that he was on that football field with his helmet. That's for sure. Yeah, he was not afraid to hit, no doubt about that. But uh, hey, let's uh, Brett, let's take a quick break here for a word from our SB Nation sponsors, and then what I want to do when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, 
about a couple of uh, issues with the, with the current New York Giants. All right, we're back here on the Valentine's Views podcast talking to former NFL center and host of the Brett Romberg show, Brett Romberg. And uh, Brett, a couple of things that I want to talk about uh, with with the uh, the present day Giants. And, and the first one is the new Giants defensive coordinator, Patrick Graham. Now you're you're down in Miami. Obviously, you probably had a, a, a chance to see the the Miami Dolphins. You know, in 2019, a whole lot more than we did. Patrick Graham, obviously, the the Dolphins defense wasn't good a year ago, but I I, I don't think you can judge Patrick Graham as a first year, first time defensive coordinator based off of based off of that because of what he was working with should Giants fans be be optimistic about Graham should they be nervous about Graham Uh, you know what can you tell us well being down here and seeing the product that he actually had in terms of players like let's face it the Miami Dolphins last year were were an, an overachieving over confident bunch and I think once you're dealing with like let's face it the degrees of separation when you're dealing with professional football players there's not much you have a couple elite guys that are going to do things that are you know that, that that shouldn't be possible by a human but you're also going to have a lot of guys that there's only a couple percentages better than the other guy so dealing with what the the Miami Dolphins had last year on that defensive side of the football and offensive side of the football for that matter wasn't a great product it really wasn't but having a coach like Graham like uh, like the coach that we just had that came from uh, the New England Patriots, uh, Flores, like having those guys as motivators. And, and when you're dealing with a team and an organization that has been down in the dumps, that hasn't been successful, that that has been jostling between quarterbacks with the disappearance of one of the Mannings now with the New York Giants, and you're going to try to go ahead and have, I believe it's Jones, right, is your quarterback now? Right. Uh, having a team rally behind that quarterback on the offensive side of the football is going to be a daunting task as is, but on the defensive side of the football defense is all about energy. Let's face it. It's not about intelligence. And I, and I know I was like probably second guessing myself by talking about how smart DG and, and Antrell roll were, but for the most part, defense is about chaos, organized chaos and energy and outworking that guy on the other side of the football. That's ultimately what defense is. It's not too schematic. It's not it's not like pulling smoke over your eyes and then trying to like pull something off with a with a with, with a blitz package that is very, you know, discreet. No, everybody knows what's really going on on defense. Very rare. You're going to get somebody uh, that doesn't understand what you're trying to do or accomplish. So on the defensive side of the ball, it's all about effort, speed, controlled chaos and and, and just having outstanding athletes on that side of the football. So having Graham come in as early as possible to motivate these guys in order to accomplish what they want to accomplish. That's basically half of the battle, if not more, is having that motivation for a new face, a new name, a new scheme, a new product and trying to make sure that that message that he's trying to accomplish is conveyed onto that defensive unit. And I think once these guys understand the common goal, that's the whole thing is understanding the common goal. Yes, clearly they don't want to score touchdowns and they don't want to let the ball 
get past them. I get I get the basic goals. But once the schematic goal is understood, I think that's where that's where you're going to start to see the Giants understanding each individual role, being accountable, being in the gap that they're supposed to be in, all because of that defensive coordinator, Graham, who's going to be trying to make these guys play together as a unit for the one common goal. That's interesting to hear because I think that uh, especially last year, one of the big issues for the New York Giants on defense you know, wasn't always talent per se. It sometimes seemed to be guys not understanding where it was they were supposed to be in the secondary or, or not, not doing what they were expected to do at the line of scrimmage against the run. So it was, it was guys just, just not seeming to, to play their roles or understand their roles. And, and I think that's a big part of what Giants fans are hoping to see with, with, uh, with this team in 2020 is simply a defense that's more disciplined, that, that understands what it's doing. Yeah, there was a lot. I, I watched a lot of you guys last year, and there was a lot of blown coverages, man. Like, guys not understanding quarters of the field. If you're in, like, a two-shell or if you're doing quarters or or if you got four across the back, which safety is supposed to be down or who's supposed to pass this off? I saw a lot of broken coverage last year with the Giants. So, clearly, communication, studying, too, man. Like, studying is a huge, huge thing. I don't know if you've ever heard about Ed Reed speak or Ray Lewis or, or certain guys that are really – real study and students of the game that understand the objective of the offense is probably where you're going to be running into a lot of stuff with Graham, especially Graham coming a year underneath of, of a new England Patriots type of philosophy of, you know, work harder, work smarter, be, be smarter than the other guy, not necessarily um, relying on ability when it comes to players. Right. I know that uh, James Bradbury, who the giants brought in from Carolina has talked a lot about, about studying and learning and knowing what other teams are trying to do and how he really hopes to uh, to help some of the Giants' younger cornerbacks understand, you know, what what it takes. You know, because obviously, as you said, you know, communication and and understanding what was going on seemed to be a huge issue for the Giants in the secondary a year ago. That's tough too, man. When you don't understand. What's cool. Like I, I found like my game went to the next level when I started studying, not only like as a kid or as, as a college student, college football player, you start to learn once you've mastered what your job is, you learn what the guy beside you is supposed to be doing. And then once you learn that, you learn maybe what your tight ends or your wide receivers or what your quarterback is thinking on where he's setting up. And once you start learning the other positions on the football field, that's when you know you you got something going on. So I imagine back in the day when you had OC and you had Tuck and and you had Antrell Roll and, and your great ridiculous linebacking core, everybody understood their role and what the guy next to him was doing. So instead of trying to compensate, for instance, if you knew you might have had a weak link or that guy wasn't studying film properly or he was getting burnt all week in practice and you never really had faith in that guy next to you, which will destroy a defense – that's where you start to see guys getting put out of position because they're trying to compensate for the other players that are on that football field. And, and you got to leave that up to the coaching staff to figure that out. That's not something that you need to be performing on the football field. you got to rely on your staff and your coaches to understand where their weak link, weak link is and then obviously make their adjustments accordingly. Right, I hear similar things from players all the time is, you know, what, what guys will say to me is we just need to understand that that 
we have to do our jobs. We can't also try to do somebody else's jobs. But but when you know, as you say, with young guys maybe who don't know how to study yet, I talk. I've talked to guys. Talked to uh, a former Giant a few years ago, Demontre Moore, who you know who basically said told me that that he thought this was going to be the same as college. He walked in the door thinking I was a star in college. They're going to hand me a job. This is going to be easy, and you know, and, and, and had no idea how to study, had no idea how to prepare. And, and I would assume that there's a lot of guys like that. You know, he's just one of the few who actually willingly admitted it to me. Right. Yeah. There, uh, and what, what baffles me, like you've heard the explanations before, you know, the, 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 the difference between, um, extraordinary and ordinary is that little extra, uh, you would be shocked at the amount of professional athletes that really do take for granted their their position in life. They they really do. It's like almost like, hey, I've made it. I'm here now. Um, I don't have to do the things that'll put me above and beyond. Like the Peyton Mannings, the Tom Brady's, the guys that bring briefcases to to, to to the practice facility, those guys, the guys that you know have the film at home, are staying up late at night, or laying in the training room watching, those guys are few and far between. If you want to look on a 53-man roster, the amount of guys that actually pay that much attention, I'm guessing you could count them on two hands. To be honest with you, to be perfectly honest with you, my guess is about 75 to 80 percent of the players on an NFL roster are guys that are just there and are just doing what they're told to do and not looking to go above and beyond the call of duty by by knowing what the guy across from them is about to do before they do it. That's why you have coaches like Bill Belichick. And that's why you have coaches, for instance, like uh, who was the, the predecessor here at, at Miami Dolphins, Adam Gase with the New York Giants. There, there's guys that are, that are film junkies. Obviously sometimes it doesn't translate or correlate on the football field because coaches that are film junkies like that need to also find players that are willing to go ahead and, and do the similar type of things because it becomes redundant. You can only tell a player so many times that he's screwed up or messed up before then he's, you're pulling his game checks and he's getting cut, you know? So I, I think that's why you see a massive revolving door as well in the NFL is as guys like me who lack size, who, who were not exactly the biggest, strongest, fastest guy on the football field, but I was pretty damn smart and I was able to hang in there for nine years. There's a reason why, guys like me can hang around the NFL for a while that lasts longer than the average two and a half, three year career over a guy that's way more athletic, way more qualified, looking like a paper champion and damn Tarzan when it comes to standing in front of somebody with a shirt off. So, Hey, you know, uh, speaking of your NFL career, you played center in the league and you were in the league from, I think 2003 to 2011. So, you know, if you're interested in a comeback, the, uh, the, the giants uh, have, have a need at center. Well, funny you mention. Um, I, I, a side note, yeah, I, I probably got about four or five snaps in me, and that'll be about it. I think my body will crumble. I'll be like, I'll be like somebody from Pompeii. I'm just like going to be ashes and just poof, you can blow on me, I'll fall over and disappear. But, uh, but I, I do think that this is a really good opportunity, especially with the fact that a lot of college players that were looking for the preseason in order for them to have an opportunity to make an NFL roster. I think that this allows teams to go back and dip into that possible retirement or a guy that's been out of football for a year who they kind of understand already and know what they're going to be getting. If they need to fill 
that extra one spot or two spots on that roster and that position group. If they need a guy that could possibly they could throw in there for a game or a series or a couple plays that they have an accountable person, regardless if he's old and crumbled and decrepit and, and might not be able to uh, to physically perform the way that he used to. But they know that he's not going to screw up or they know that he's going to be accountable and understanding what his role is. And that has been on television before that has been on an NFL zone or atmosphere before with fans and all that other kind of stuff. So I, I think it could possibly have that resurrection type feel for some players that were on the fence about retiring. That, that's interesting, you know, that, that you mention it because I'm not sure that you know, you know, who the various players are that the Giants have at the center position. Obviously, John Halapio was their starting center the last uh, two seasons. Halapio suffered a, a torn Achilles tendon with uh, with five minutes to go in the in the season finale a year ago. Oh, that's awful. So he's currently unsigned. Uh, the Giants say, you know, continuously say that we're monitoring his health, but but I've had torn Achilles tendons, and I know how long they take to recover from, and 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 I can't see John Halapio being a guy who would be healthy enough to to play, you know, every snap, you know, through training camp and every snap through a, a regular season. Right. So, I mean, he might be one of those guys that they reach out to in the middle of the season if they have injuries or illnesses and, you know, to, to get them through a couple of games. But it's it's interesting with the Giants, though, at the center position, because what I wanted to get to is they have Spencer Pulley, who's been in the league for two or three years, who's played, who started for a year with the, with the Chargers. They don't have on their roster another player who has played the center position. They they have several guys who are conversion projects. They have Nick Gates, who's played some guard and some tackle. They have Shane Lemieux, who's a guard they drafted out of Oregon in the fifth round, who they've, they've said they want to cross-train at center. They have a couple of undrafted free agents who have been talked about as center conversion prospects. And I guess the question is, in this current environment, with no off season, with such limited amount of time in a preseason, and the and the, the possibility that there might not be preseason games, is it realistic for a guy like Nick Gates, who's never played the position, has played two NFL games, one as a guard and one as a tackle? Is it realistic to think that he can? step over to center, learn that job, and basically orchestrate an offensive line when he's never done it before? Uh, I, I personally don't think so because I was I was more of a cerebral player than, uh, than anything. And the way that you are the quarterback of the offensive line, a lot of that's going to fall on Jones, to be honest with you. If, if you're telling me that, that uh, seasoned uh, Eli Manning was back there at the quarterback spot orchestrating who to block who and who to identify, that's eh, a possibility. It's a possibility, and then he will learn, uh, Lemieux and Gates will learn ultimately how to play center. But if you're dealing with Jones, a young quarterback who needs to worry about his job uh, at this point in time and what he's got going on on the football field, not necessarily worrying about who to point to and who the blocking scheme is going to be responsible for, 
I, I think it's a daunting task, especially, especially if you want to go ahead and dive into were these kids intellectuals in college? Are they smart football players or are they just meatheads and guys that can road grade? Because when it comes to identifying, predicting, um, finger pointing and orchestrating the five guys that are moving forward, tight end sometimes included, you, you, you gotta be, you gotta be on point and have seen it before from that location on the football field. I think a center can always become a guard. It's going to be very difficult for a guard to become a center and then vice versa with the tackles and the guard situation. I think that it's very difficult for a guard to bump on out and be on an Island as a tackle, but I do believe a tackle can thrive on the inside, much like your boy flowers, what he ended up doing thriving on the inside now with the, I believe it's, is it soon to be changed to Washington Redskins? Yes, it is. And, and, you know, I, I, I have the name Eric Flowers written in my notebook here, and I, I wasn't sure I wanted to get into yeah, that one for you. Yeah, it some podcast time on, uh, on Eric Flowers, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And, you know, Eric Flowers was a guy who just, uh, I don't know how well you know him from, you know, from the Miami days, but he just never seemed like a fit in New York. He just never seemed comfortable. And I don't know, maybe he could have played guard in New York. I don't know. It just seemed like you know Jerry Reese was 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 firmly committed to to proving that that he wasn't wrong in drafting Eric Flowers to play left tackle you know by by insisting that he get left there but I just I don't know it just seemed to me like Flowers was never a guy who really enjoyed being in New York he he didn't enjoy being at the University of Miami either to be perfectly honest with you uh, he didn't fit in down here either to to be perfectly honest. I know coaches had an issue with him. I know even teammates and players had issue with him, whether it was his accountability, his laziness, uh, his, his, his love for the greenery, uh, the devil's lettuce, whoever, you know, whatever, whatever his flavor was, it definitely didn't mix well with the, with the ideology behind the university of Miami and the offensive line room. Um, I did have dealings with him as a senior year, as he was getting ready to go into the NFL um, I did have conversations with him quite often, to be honest with you, about you know trying to help him out when he when he's choosing representation, trying to help him out to to not uh, be influenced because it seemed like Eric had a lot of influence and not necessarily good influence on his decision making. I know he's very close to, I believe it was his father, right? Was the one that was basically handling him left and right. I believe so. Yes. Yeah, I know he was very close to that, but without having any kind of experience in the world of football or athletics. That's a tough, uh, that's a tough, I guess you can say, uh, role model to look to when it comes to navigating the rest of your life by being a draft pick. And when the Giants picked him, when you guys picked him first round as early as you did, my jaw hit the floor. I got a phone call from the offensive line coach at the University of Miami going, wait a minute, did I miss something? Uh, yeah, it was, it was shocking. It really was shocking. I, I couldn't believe that that happened. You know, I was happy for the kid, obviously. But uh, but watching him struggle week in and week out at that left tackle position, his technique sucked just like it sucked in college. Uh, he wouldn't learn. He wouldn't uh, take criticism and he wouldn't change. And it was just like, I don't know how much longer you want to continue doing your thing and not being successful. Like, I, I don't get it. Yeah, I had no idea that uh, that the, the folks in Miami felt that way about him, you know, coming out of college that uh, <laughs> that's alarming to me that that a team would draft him that high because you know that if if scouts and, and and if the general manager is doing his job properly, you know that he's heard all of that. 
Yeah, it's, 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 and, and again, you're going to get into like, you know, sabotaging college kids by telling them, you know, I don't know if you want this kid on your team. It happens. That does happen. Um, but also you get a lot of puff pieces written as well about kids and, and you, you don't want to be that person that it comes back that you were the one that said, don't pick this kid because of X. So I imagine, you know, and you're also dealing with the university of Miami, not not wanting to go ahead and put a kid in a bad light because I know what's happened down here in the past where you know you got coaches that are just uh, frankly too honest about how a player is down here because of whatever kind of relationship that that, that coach has with that scout or that NFL organization. So uh, yeah, shocked. Trust me, everybody was shocked that Eric Flowers was picked that early in the NFL draft. Interesting stuff. I really didn't think we were gonna get uh, we were gonna get that deep into Eric Flowers today, there, Brett. <laughs> the gift that keeps on giving. Eric Flowers now making a hell of a lot of money playing for uh, whatever the new team's gonna be called there in Washington. But uh, he did seem to find his home. He did seem to find his home. And then obviously now we got him down here at the at the Miami Dolphins. Again, he made a hell of a lot of money uh, by switching to the inside, leaving Washington. They loved him over there. Like I, I talked to Clinton Portis all the time about it. They really did love him. He was like their go-to offensive lineman when it comes to showing a guy on screen and showing how to properly do stuff. So maybe he did find his home at the guard position. And now hopefully, hopefully for us down here with the Miami Dolphins, we get to see that benefit with flowers inside at guard. Well, guys do change and guys do learn and, uh, and, and good for him. If, uh, if, if that's happened for him and uh, good for his bank account, uh, either way. Yeah. yeah and I, I don't think you're going to see too many Miami hurricane, Eric flowers jerseys at the stadium, to be honest. With <laughs> I don't think you're going to see any jerseys at stadiums this year. <laughs> that's a good point. That's a good point. All right. Hey, Brett, I really do appreciate your, your time. Uh, we t- I took a lot more of your time than I thought I might, so appreciate no, you. conversation, yeah, appreciate man. You. I always appreciate it. Hey, uh, thank you very much. Why don't you uh, tell tell the folks where they can uh, find you on Twitter, where they can hear your show, and, and all that good stuff before I let you yeah, go. Yeah, for sure. Uh, pretty simple. Romberg66. My last name in 66 is all my handles, social media-wise, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Um I'm on I'm on twelve ten down here in Miami, so you can find that if you're streaming up there. Obviously, you can find that on your radio.net. Again, it's twelve ten. The man, uh, Brett Romberg show, self titled, so you don't have to look too far. And uh, yeah, the stuff that with me and Antro Roll and some University of Miami. If there's Miami Canes fans up there, you got the Out the Huddle podcast that me and Trell, DJ Williams, and Jonathan Vilma are all kind of like privy to. So, uh, so yeah, you could you could check us out on any of those platforms. I think YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, all that stuff. Oh, cool. Maybe one of these days we'll uh, maybe one of these days we'll get you to hook us up with Antrell for a for a quick appearance oh, here on uh, here yeah, on our yeah. show. That, sure. that would be that that would be really cool. So maybe we'll do that someday. But Brett, thank you very, very much, and uh, we'll talk to you again. All right, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. All right, Giants fans, that's our show for today. Please stay safe out there. Wear your mask, wash your hands, do everything you can to uh, to remain safe and healthy. All right, thank you for listening. Bye bye now. <laughs>